Hey folks, welcome to our recap CCTMC 16 day three. We are super excited. Our catacols are certainly surging. We're at the end of our conference time and the post-conference depression is certainly setting in. But nevertheless, we want to leave some parting words for, again, those folks who were unfortunate enough not to be able to attend this year. We have reassembled our expert panel and we're going to go ahead and do some introductions. Very lucky to have at Total Recess here from Sweden. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself, sir? Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. I'm a Swedish physician. I'm uh, boarded in anesthesia and emergency medicine and followed the, the conference from Twitter last year. And I thought, I have to come and here you I am. A, you have a real name too. Aside yeah, that's Fred, Frederick Granholm. Hey, it's Bill Hinckley again, uh, flight doc and uh, 16th year resident, Cincinnati, Ohio, air care. My name is Mike Storwald. I'm a flight doc from the University of Wisconsin. Mike Abernathy, flight physician and uh, ED doc from University of Wisconsin. Hi guys, it's Chris Fulgar. I am the medical director of the Onondaga County Sheriff's Air One and flight physician and the current AMPA president. And newly on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle, sir? Um, I, I sent my first tweet out the other day. I'm super excited about that. I am at 87MD1. So uh, for those folks listening, certainly help support our current AMPA president and follow him on Twitter. So starting off the morning, we had Dr. Chuck Shepard talking about It's All About the Spin. I went to that talk and uh, Chuck is a, an outstanding speaker as always. He spoke about the limitations of the evidence of medicine and we all know and love evidence-based medicine, but it's not without its shortcomings. It's important to make sure that you know we are critical of what we are reading. Don't take things at face value and continually ask why. There are many limitations, as Chuck pointed out. There's publication bias, association versus causation, the differences between statistical and clinical significance are also very important. He also gave a bit of a plug to FOMAT too, the importance of the, the various organizations out there supporting this, like MRAT, MCRIT, Taming the Shrew can all help us to navigate what is out there as far as the evidence. You know, I've oftentimes heard that people can be talking about the limitations of evidence as an excuse not to keep up with the literature, but it's important to do actually the opposite of that and make sure that you are critical, continually ask why and keep an eye on what's out there and how people are talking about it. Simultaneously, we had another talk by Anthony Baca, which was absolutely fantastic. And it was a critical appraisal of examining, you know, what exactly constitutes evidence. So the talk was entitled, Pre-Hospital Intubation, A World of Debate About the Wrong Question. And he really uh, presented some great points, one of which is when we talk about the RSI process and pre-hospital intubation, oftentimes our data is based on the PCR. The PCR, as we know, is written by the subjective perception of the provider. So when we talk about things such as the incidence of hypoxia or the incidence of hypotension, oftentimes that is dependent on our subjective perception of exactly what happened. And he brought some interesting examples from the legal world that were non-medical that saying during critical incidents, during high stress incidents, our perception of reality may in fact be quite different than is what is actually transpiring. 
So he was advocating looking at our, uh, or rather being honest, looking at our monitor data after every critical event, whether it's a cardiac arrest scenario or a full QAQI of every pre-hospital intubation and getting the actual data regarding hypoxia, hypotension, or things just that went not as planned. Building from that and just being supportive of folks and trying to develop best practices to optimize those conditions. So that was a great talk, and I think we can certainly all go a long way in, in fact, incorporating the monitor data into our QA, QI process. Next up, a very exciting talk. Consider the extraglottic device. It was eye-opening for me in so many different ways by none other than one of our panelists, Mike Sturwald. Uh, thanks. I, I appreciate that. That's great feedback to get. I was actually kind of fearful before this talk that I would get into, I don't know, maybe a little bit too much nitty-gritty that would lose some audience members. A comment was made to me by someone who will remain nameless that I was going to talk about like weird notches in the 2011 model of like the King LT. I don't know, the, the goals of the talk were twofold. Um, first is I, I wanted to digress for a moment and inspire folks to make what a guy named Jim Collins termed in a book called Good to Great, A Good to Great Transition, which doesn't have to be just a business lesson. It can be a lesson to really anything that you do. You just have to decide you're going to do it. And I think that it, with respect to emergency airway management, really that's all you need to do is decide you're going to make that good to great transition and then and then affect it. Now, the second part of the talk was to try to affect a change from a situation where we view extraglottic devices and where we view them as something that you just kind of randomly pick and use if you need, rather than really considering the nuances of each device, becoming expert in the nuances of the, of nuances of the devices, and then choosing one based on those nuances and how they will help you in your specific mission. And then after you've made that choice, really making sure that the whole team knows exactly what the features are, what the features are for, how they can help you, and then how each device has a potential shortcoming. So we reviewed uh, the history of the LMA from Archie Brain until present day and some of the other LMA style devices, as I like to refer to them, uh, and uh, some dual balloon devices as well. So Mike, you you have transitioned into a world expert on extraglottic devices, which has been super cool for me to witness. Congratulations. At one point during the talk, you stood up on a chair to specifically make a point. That point, as I recall, was about how we in critical care transport have to more deeply consider how we're going to manage a patient with an extraglottic device in place after it's there. Okay. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, first, thank you. Um, the, so the point that I was trying to make was that in, in not just pre-hospital care, but in emergency medicine, we viewed extraglottic devices and therefore superglottic devices and retroglottic devices as rescue tools. So the people that you cannot mask ventilate or the people that you cannot intubate um, that you potentially use these devices or potentially to manage the airway in a cardiac arrest situation, um, et cetera, et cetera. We haven't really become sophisticated as a specialty in management of the devices after they are placed because the, the de facto move has always been to just rip them out and put in uh, a cuffed endotracheal tube which um, I think we have started to realize is potentially perilous because the devices can like induce a difficult airway because of pharyngeal edema and such. 
And if they were placed because of difficulty, it's not like they've re relieved the difficulty. Um, they've just helped you helped you mitigate um, that difficulty. So the point that I was trying to make was not to say that you have to do anything specific with respect to exchanging the devices, but you at least have to consider what you are going to do to exchange the device for something else uh, and to have a plan for that. Whether that be to just rip the thing out but do it in a controlled setting or try to get around it to intubate or whether it's intubate directly through, through it with a fiber scope, intubate directly through it blindly or um, to use some kind of an exchange kit like an Aintree catheter or a, uh, uh, an ARNT kit. So it, the point that I was trying to make is you have to think about that rather than just saying, well, it's in, somebody else will deal with it. Because if you're part of a greater trauma system somewhere, you should have that conversation with either your emergency department docs, your anesthesia docs, your trauma docs, and say, hey, what's gonna be our plan for this? So you can have a plan and, and get the stuff that you need to do it. That's the, that's the point that I was trying to make. One other thing that I really w took away from this was on a totally different level uh, than airway management. And in the beginning of your talk, you discussed a little bit about uh, how we come to together and how we literally change the world. And there's a very per little precious time that we have uh, when we are together. But this is really where we forge relationships. We get to know each other. Projects start and collaboration continues. And social media has come a long way in being able to help bring people together and share ideas. But there's really nothing like being together in person. And I really appreciated that. And I, I do appreciate the time that we all have together here in Charlotte as well. Mike, for those folks who weren't, who did not have the pleasure nor privilege of attending your talk, can you talk a little bit about the uh, nuances and differences in definitions? What exactly is the difference between a superglottic versus an extraglottic device? Uh, sure. I'll summarize as uh, quickly and succinctly as I can without, I don't know, getting too wordy. So an extraglottic device is an invasive airway device that does not pass through the glottic orifice, so the space in between the vocal cords. So an EGD is all of those things. Uh, and I mean, we know what those things are. The term supraglottic airway or supraglottic device is sometimes used interchangeably um, with that, and that's probably incorrect. It, it, it depend, depends who you, you follow and who you read exactly what the terminology is. But I would consider a supraglottic device and a dual balloon device, which is also referred to as a retroglottic some device sometimes, as being an, a way of breaking down um, the extraglottic devices into two categories. So extraglottic devices are everything. Superglottic devices are the subset that sit primarily above the glottis, and the dual balloon devices or retroglottic devices are those that sit kind of behind uh, and above the glottis. So. The superglottic devices are the LMAs and their derivatives, and the retroglottic devices, dual balloon devices, are the combi tube, easy tube, and um, nowadays uh, the, uh, the King LT or the laryngeal tube as it's known in other parts of the world. Each device um, within those groups has different features and different pros and cons. So the, the superglottic devices aren't all the same, and the dual balloon retro, retroglottic devices aren't all the same. Um, each has individual features, and depending on when they were introduced, they evolved over time, 
with those different features. So that that's the that's the terminology in a nutshell. Amazing. I think that will really help bring it home for folks. And if you still have questions or if you're a visual learner, certainly catch uh, Mike's talk online. It's catch, K-A-T-C-H dot M-E forward slash docs one word. And you can, in fact, watch the full video, including all the videos that we've live streamed during the conference here. So we certainly encourage that. Yeah. The, the most important questions, just whenever you're considering any one of these devices, is just what's the classification? What is its generation, i.e., does it have a gastric drain built in or not? What is reasonably, what's a guess of what the seal pressures are? And then can it be intubated blindly through? And the only device that can be intubated blindly through reliably is the intubating LMA or LMA fast track. And then can you intubate directly through it with a fiberscope? And then can you use an exchange kit? Those are really the only questions you have to ask. And I go through some of that in the, in the lecture. Next up, we had Dr. Ben Nicholson from BMC, Boston Med Center, talking about pre-hospital ultrasound and ultrasound in critical care transport. So we'll just mention that briefly. Certainly the evidence base for pre-hospital ultrasound is something that is sparse, but nevertheless, it's a diagnostic tool that can certainly help add a remarkable insight to our sickest patients, those patients that were actively resuscitating, or those patients that may decompensate during a critical care transport. The number of indications for ultrasound are ever expanding. And in fact, uh, despite ultrasound training myself, he taught me something new today, which was you can use ultrasonography to measure the distance or gap between the pubic symphysis for a potential open book pelvic fracture, which I was not even aware you could potentially do. So remarkable insight there, um, great examples for folks who are trying to just get a basic understanding of pre-hospital ultrasound, exactly what it is, and the future uses and applications as we as a community continue to develop the evidence base for this modality. The other thing too that was mentioned is that there, there are a number of things that we can do with pre-hospital ultrasound. The important thing is, is to develop the things that are going to make a difference, particularly in the field uh, with a diagnosis, monitoring, as well as the therapeutic interventions. And there are a number of things that we can do, but we have to build relationships with the people that we are going to be working with, with the receiving institutions and the trauma centers in order to make what we see out in the field going to be affecting something that's going to be occurring downstream after we transfer the patient. And in the lecture, they talked about a number of things that we can do as far as interventions and monitoring the patient and really doing things that make a difference in patient care in real time in the field. Talk about leaving the best for last. The last three lectures were absolutely world-class. To start it off, Dr. Abernethy was discussing reimplantation care and the disposition of the traumatic digit amputation patient. Yeah, it sounds like sort of a strange topic to pick, but um, after seeing, I work in a tertiary care center, and after seeing multiple patients over the years emergently transported for possible digit reimplantation in a large portion of those never went to surgery and a large portion of them actually were discharged from the ED. And so I thought to myself, what's happening here? Uh, you know, why is this happening? And looking through the literature, it was quite interesting. You know, the actual 
indications for digit reimplantation, replantation actually the term is, and examining those, and then talking with several hand surgeons. I guess the big takeaway points from this are when you're going to refer a patient from an emergency department to a hand surgeon for emergent replantation, um, you need to communicate. Uh, they've actually had some studies, simple things like cell phone photos. Two or three cell phone photos can provide great accuracy determining whether this patient is a candidate or not. And you know that can save a lot of time in aggravation because these patients, if they are not a candidate, you know, simple stump revisions can be done by any orthopedic surgeon and they don't require transfer across the state depending on the distance. Um, the other thing I learned, which was quite interesting, is there is no golden hour. The ischemic time for an amputated digit, warm, is 8 to 12 hours. If it's properly placed in a baggie on ice, you have up to 24 hours to get that patient to definitive care without affecting survival and function. So I guess the take-home message, and I was quite surprised to see that in the indications for um, ASEP and the National EMS physicians, the air medical dispatch criteria, as one of those, they actually had in the case of digital or thumb amputations, you should think about using air medical transport to get these people to definitive care for emergent evaluation. And after combing through years of literature and talking to multiple hand surgeons, that is not based on any science. As I said, now when we're talking about hand amputations and arm amputations, that's a different story. But what we're talking about today is simply digital amputations. They typically do not require air medical transport. But overall, it was, it was quite interesting and, uh, and going through the history of it, and that's about it. But Mike, we know from the literature that 98.6% of all flights are medically appropriate, don't we? Well, that's again, I guess if you follow those criteria, they can be sort of widely interpreted, yes. But uh, if you can talk to the people who are on the receiving end, for this, you know, there's some entities that are sort of vague, but and as I talked with burns, uh, you know, dealing with uh, thermal burns, once the airway is secured, again, unlike trauma, there is no golden hour. A lot of these patients can be safely transported by ground as long as the airway is okay, as long as they have appropriate analgesia and appropriate fluid resuscitation. There is nothing they do magic in the burn units, with the exception people bring up escherotomy, and that's typically eight hours down the line. So again, no golden hour. But yeah, with digital replants, we see quite a few of those flown long distances. And I brought up the one case, it was a $55,000 transport bill, and the patient was discharged from the ED within an hour. So people weren't communicating. Yeah, perhaps my tongue was in my cheek when I said that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next up, I'm so happy this was included on the agenda using simulation to troubleshoot the logistics of a complex transport. Okay, so these were uh, my, my friends and colleagues in Cincinnati, uh, Sharon Walshart and Brian Pio, and they made a couple of really important points. So we do a fair number of extremely complex transports at my program, uh, both by ground and by air. We think of simulation as something that we do to educate ourselves and our teams. 
But we also need to consider that simulation can be a really important way for us to develop and fine-tune our operations, our clinical pro uh, protocols and algorithms. They made that point very effectively. The other thing that came through in their presentation was how important it is to emphasize that everybody participating in the sim has to suspend disbelief and really get into it for it to achieve its maximum goals. When you do that, especially if you are able to do the sim in an in-situ setting as opposed to in the sim lab, uh, if you get to the point where people that aren't involved in the sim come running to ask if they can help with this really sick person, then you may be doing it right. Frederick, did you have some? Uh, yeah, I thought that this uh, was a really inspiring lecture and we do quite a fair bit of simulation in my daily work, but we mainly focus on the clinical stuff. Uh, but hearing about how to optimize and troubleshoot the whole change of logistics was really something I'm, I'll bring back to, to my service. Uh, training with the, all the gear in a moving ambulance, looking for small details that are easily missed, like uh, can you sit down in your Ebola suit? Will the ECMO perfusionist get nausea? And so on. So that was really, really nice. One other thing that I would say, we do some crazy stuff with simulation in Cincinnati, and much of that is enabled by a partnership that we have with the Air Force and Sea Stars. I had no idea when, when this partnership first began of the beauty of a military-civilian partnership for healthcare, and I, I got a lot of appreciation to those guys for what they bring to the table for, for my team and our patients in Cincinnati. When we talk about newer technologies that are coming to the forefront, I think a great point that was brought up yesterday was regardless of what the evidence base is for these modalities, in critical care transport, you will have to deal with it uh, in one way, shape, form, or another, whether that's Raboa or ECMO or anything along those lines. And in fact, the lecture was started with the first case of uh, ECMO in Cincinnati, which was requested for a critical care transport. Amazing. All right, last, Michael Frakes, danger, resuscitation ahead. And I think the internet literally broke during this lecture because it was so full of amazing content and dogma lysis. Yeah, I really enjoyed his delivery style I have for years, his dry sense of humor, and that's part of it, but his message and his details were great in his mastery of the literature. Uh, the hyperoxia is a take-home message that, you know, hyperoxia is bad. I really was interested in a lot of the things about blood transfusion and the subtleties of what did he call it? The storage lesion. Storage lesion. And you know, things to think about that when blood is stored, you know, bad things happen to it and it loses its its potency. And as a program that we have pre-hospital blood. Uh, you wonder, you know, is the blood you're getting, can they brought up the points in traumas that, you know, certain traumas were shown to have a higher mortality with transfusion. And the fact is, though, the traumas were getting the older blood and was there some sort of relationship. But um, again, you know, quite interesting. The thing that makes, well, many things make uh, Michael such an amazing lecturer, but one thing is the way that he is able to always bring us back to physiology, yeah. which facilitates recall because we understand the underlying reason uh, for the findings of the literature. So he's able to do that in a way that still maintains a, a lighthearted humor, and nobody's better than him at that. 
And I think for all the complexities of what he spoke about, um, a few of the takeaway messages were very simple. What we do has consequences. And just giving a patient oxygen for the sake of giving oxygen has some drawbacks to it. Giving a patient volume for the sake of giving volume also has drawbacks. Even transfusion, blood, that should be just like any other intervention, just like any other medication we do, carefully determined as to what the risks and the benefits are for that individual person. And if the patient doesn't need it or doesn't meet the physiologic criteria for transfusion, giving it to them may actually be detrimental. So I think that those are some of the more simple takeaways that came from um, a very engaging and a very thought-provoking lecture. When I first started in EMS, pretty much every patient got a non-rebreather and either a liter of saline or 40 of Lasix. And this may not have been the optimal management strategy. All right, fair enough. Uh, there's been a fair bit of banter regarding pre-hospital blood transfusion. Frederick, I thought I'd ask you, what is uh, the current practice in Europe and more specifically Sweden? Uh, well, it depends between bases. There's no national structure for bringing blood uh, on the hem service, but uh, some use it, but some don't. So we're waiting for the refill study to get some more knowledge about that. Thanks for that insight. So that wraps up our conference uh, day three. And to leave you guys off, we know you're clearly going to be with, in withdrawal from all the tweets from CCTMC 16. We have our president, Chris Fulagar, on CCTMC 17. I cannot wait for CCTMC 2017. I am really looking forward to it. Uh, the Critical Care Transport Medicine Conference next year will be April 10th through 12th, 2017, and will be at the Wyndham San Antonio Riverwalk Hotel in San Antonio, Texas. So join us at ampa.org as well as at ampadocs on Twitter and uh, we look forward to seeing you next year in San Antonio. Yeah, we've been there I believe three times in the past and <clears throat> I'm sure we're going to have a stellar lineup of speakers but the venue, San Antonio is probably one of my favorite places I've been to for the AMPA conference. Uh, the Riverwalk, uh, the history there, and uh, just overall, just in the weather is always nice that time of year. Uh, it actually has almost a European flavor to it. So highly, highly encourage everyone to mark this on their calendars, and we will keep you posted. Amazing. That wraps it up for us here in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour. Mm-hmm.